Well, on New Year's Eve, back in 2004, there was a British paratrooper that would be the equivalent of an American Navy SEAL, and he had an appetite for danger and adrenaline and, and all that stuff. So he went to the Transylvania Alps, Alps rather, uh, and he found the highest peak in Romania. It was a mountain named Moldavanu in Romania. And this 27-year-old Special Forces guy uh, arrived in the dead of winter, sub-zero temperatures. He didn't tell anybody he was going there, which is a really dumb idea, by the way. And he made his descent, and it was dark when he did. So as he approached the summit, out of nowhere, this unexpected avalanche came down the mountain and swept him over the edge of a cliff 75 feet below to the rocks down beneath him. Instantly, it shattered his pelvis, it snapped his femur, and it pushed up broken bone fragments through his hip, and he was in excruciating pain. He was bleeding internally, he was freezing, he was separated from his supplies, he didn't have any food, he didn't have any water, and so he only had one option. He had to crawl, this guy had to crawl eight miles through frozen, treacherous terrain to a nearby village so that he can find help. He was alone, he was afraid, he was in the dark, and he was in agony. He wrote a book called Darkness Descending where he tells his story. So this guy facing serious injury, internal bleeding, hypothermia, frostbite, he was hallucinating, he thought there was a pack of hungry wolves after him, and he overcame impossible odds to reach safety. That was an agonizing experience for him. Darkness and pain, you might say, were the only friends he had. That was it. He felt abandoned. He felt alone. He didn't think he would make it out alive. Now listen, some Christians, people who are blood-bought children of the king, endure an experience like that every single day. I've met them. Many of them could sign their name to this poem, this song, Psalm 88, that Craig read for us earlier. Maybe you're one of them, and you haven't told us so because you feel embarrassed you feel ashamed. Maybe you've been told some version of sola bootstrapsia that you, you get through the Christian life by pulling yourself up by your bootstraps and never let them see you sweat and smile even when you don't feel like it and just pretend. I meet a lot of Christians and that's the way they live their life. And that is a terrible place to visit and it's a horrible place to live. And yet so many people do. Maybe it's not an avalanche that caused your darkness and Maybe it's not some kind of injury. Maybe for no discernible reason at all, you're just suddenly plunged in the darkness. You feel like these walls with no escape just go up and surround you. And let's be real, guys. Let's, can, I really want to be real in here. Sometimes when we're in a place like this, the Psalm 88 guy, there is very little understanding or empathy or compassion from other Christians. Anybody want to testify to that? Have you ever had these happy little platitudes thrown at you where you were walking, you were taking your walk in the dark and somebody said, just, just wake up and think happy thoughts. I've told you the story before of my wife suffering tremendous postpartum depression when we were in California and a well-meaning but terribly misguided Christian who had been at this amazing, solid doctrinal church for decades. He actually said to her in a home group study that I led, he said, just wake up and think happy thoughts. He said, when you get up in the morning, Sarah, push the up button on the elevator. Don't push the down button. Just choose to be happy. And we thought, that's brilliant. Why didn't we think of that, man? That is so profound. We'll just choose to be happy. 
No, that's not, that's not how it works when you're in depression. It's out of your control so often, right? There's very little empathy from Christians. So what does the Bible say about that? I've got to be honest with you. I didn't know this psalm was in my Bible until years after I had been a Christian. And when I found it, I didn't really know what to do with it. <laughs> I'm like, what? Is this a mistake? You know, the, the irony, like Craig said, is that a man named He-Man, if you're a child of the 80s, that is funny. I have the power, right? This guy doesn't have no power. A man named He-Man wrote this psalm, and some people think he didn't bother to finish it. You know, that last line where he repented of his terrible attitude and returned to live the abundant Christian life with vigor and with resolve, right? No, it's, it's finished. This was not a copying error. The whole thing's here. The last word in this psalm, in Hebrew, is literally darkness. It's darkness. Now, I know we love resolution. We are a happily ever after kind of people. We want the good guys to win. We want the cancer to shrink. We want the couple to reunite. We want the game-winning field goal to get kicked, right? Like the Christian movies that we see. But you can, if that's your only view of the Christian life, you can rip this one right out of your Bible. Because there's no cheap, easy, shallow resolve here. This psalm does not end in resolution. It ends in darkness. And God put this psalm here for a reason. If you do not have, in your theology of worship, a place for a Psalm 88 kind of guy, this is not the only place in the Bible this kind of thing is written, I'll show you. Then you need to rethink what worship really looks like. This is fighting in the dark, but it is fighting. This man didn't give up. He's hanging on for dear life. He's not going anywhere. And I hope we see some of the things that God has for us. You don't have to live in shame and fear and isolation. So many Christians do because they think God doesn't understand. Nobody else understands. I can't talk about this. I'm all alone. And that just exacerbates and compounds the problem that you're already experiencing, that you feel deserted and abandoned and forsaken, right? That's where so many people live their life. But this really doesn't sound like a prayer when you read it. It sounds like something out of an Edgar Allan Poe book, doesn't it? I mean, it's a song. Craig read the subscript. I asked him to. It's a song, a psalm. A man composed this and handed it to the choir director and said, let's sing this. But it doesn't sound like a praise song. It reads almost like a suicide note. It really does. People have analyzed this and they said, man, I'm, I got to tell you, that sounds like this guy's given up. If a psychologist read this, he would say, somebody needs to go intervene, like soon. Because that's what it reads like. One scholar wrote this. This is the darkest, saddest psalm in all the Bible. It is one wail of sorrow from beginning to end. Did you guys pay attention when this was read? This is dark, guys. This is rare, really dark. You're like, what is he doing? Isn't this a church? We were just singing and clapping. What are you preaching on this for? Because it's in the Bible. Listen, the Bible says that all of Scripture is profitable for re rebuke, for reproof, and for correction and instruction in righteousness. We either believe that or we don't. We either believe this was a mistake and God missed this one, or it's here for a time such as this. Did you know the suicide rate in America is higher than it's ever been? 47,000 people took their own life in 2017. That's 2,000 more than the year before. That's double the homicide rate. I mean, I guess suicide's a form of homicide, depending on how you look at it. That's, that's insane. That is absolutely insane. And a lot of those people, if they were studied, if there was a case study, a lot of them would be written up to mental instability, mental illness. A lot of them feel 
just like this guy did. I'm not saying he was mentally ill. I'm saying we don't know what was going on. And to be honest with you, I'm kind of thankful. I'm thankful there's an inspired... Uh, I don't want to say uh, viguity maybe. There's, there's just, we don't really know specifically what this guy was going through except what he felt like. He's sharing and recording his experience. I don't know if he lost a spouse, a child, if he just feels overwhelmed with depression. We don't know. We'll talk that, about that more in a little bit. But I'm thankful that it's here. You're not going to find this psalm on the back of a Christian t-shirt, I promise you. This is not the stencil that you buy at a Christian uh, bookstore to put on your wall. <laughs> The waves of your wrath have swallowed me up, say law. You're not going to find that in the living room anywhere, right? Or, or in the background of a Thomas Kincaid painting. It's not going to happen. And this was supposed to be sang. This was a worship song for Israel. Anybody ever heard this song sang at a church? Can you imagine, Cindy, composing? <laughs> Darkness is my only friend. I feel overwhelmed with wrath. Sing it with me, Stan. No, it's not going to happen. A lot of people do not have a compartment for a psalm like this in their life. And that's a tragedy because there's tremendous encouragement here. Somebody asked me earlier, I'm not going to point you out, don't worry. They said, man, well, is this going to end well? Are we going to like crawl out on all fours? I said, you wait. You wait and see if you're not helped and encouraged. Not by me, but just by what this psalm, I think, what it, what it teaches us. Some Christians are really reluctant to admit their darkness because of the platitudes I talked about. Either think happy thoughts or repent. Crucify your flesh. Get over this. Confess your sins. Die to yourself. You're overreacting. It's not that bad. All, a lot of you could raise your hand and say, I've, I've, I've been there before. Maybe on the other side of that. Maybe you've said that to people who tried to come to you because they thought you were a safe person to confide in and say something along the lines of, man, I'm overwhelmed. I don't know what to do. If nothing else, let the psalm teach us, man, we live in a fallen world. There's such deep and profound brokenness. Be gracious and compassionate to people. You never know when somebody's living this psalm and you're their last connecting human being to try and reach out for help. Some people have called this the cry of the leper, a man with a fatal disease that's been shunned and, and, and banished to the valley of the lepers. Other people think Job wrote this, the guy who lost all his family. Some people think this is metaphorically Israel in captivity in Egypt or Babylon. Why is that? Because some people cannot fathom somebody feeling this way unless they have leprosy or unless they lost all their children in one day, Job did, or unless they've been taken captive by a hostile foreign power like Assyria or Babylon or Egypt. But listen, this is not just external darkness this guy's talking about. Those things are there. He feels abandoned, yes. But this is the worst kind of darkness. It's internal. So he's got the external darkness pressing in on him. He looks inside and there's darkness there too. I mean, this is the worst, worst case scenario. You can see how terrible his affliction is. If you look at the first eight verses here, Full of troubles. My soul is full of troubles. He thinks he's dying. He has no strength. He feels abandoned. He's basically saying, God hates me. People hate me. I'm left all alone. Do you see that in those first eight verses there? And it's, and it's got this... By the way, this psalm is called a, a, a... Scholars call it a psalm of disorientation. What's that mean? It's, logically, it's hard to follow this guy. Even though this is inspired, this is his experience. And God led him to record it for us. 
It's almost like he's, there's an earthquake. It's hard, it's hard to go to this psalm and have a nice, neat preaching outline. It's just not there. Because he's disoriented. But he's being real. He's being honest. And he's being transparent. If you encountered this guy in the lobby on a Sunday morning, you probably wouldn't ask him after the fifth Sunday, how you doing today, man? <laughs> or if you did, he may say, you can't handle the truth. I just can't tell anybody how I feel. Christians don't fare well in darkness. We are not a nocturnal kind of people. We're afraid of the, We make fun of kids, but you know what? We're afraid of the dark. Really, spiritually. We don't know what's in it. We don't know what caused it. We don't know how long it's going to last, and we don't know what the cure is. Scared to death, just like this man was. But I want to tell you this. Even though this is a dark psalm, and it may be a little bit scary, there are some encouraging things in here. And even though it's a psalm of disorientation, we're going to, we're going to pick some things out of here that are going to help us. So, fighting in the dark. I want to give you four fighting tips. I'm not a fighter. I never have been. Not a boxer. You could probably beat me up pretty easy. I can't run as fast as I used to. But you know what? If you're going to fight, it'd be, it'd be great to have some tips from somebody, wouldn't it? Like, look, man, if you want to survive in the street, this is what you do. So here are four tips for fighting in the dark. And listen, if you came in here today and you're, you're on top of the mountain, pra praise the Lord for that, man. Relish those moments. But maybe this will help you. Just bookmark this away, okay? for maybe when a dark night of the soul comes upon you, or if you know somebody that's going through something like this, maybe this will encourage you and help you know how to minister to them. So just four points. Number one, get real with God. Number two, register your pain. Number three, rest in what you know. And five, revel in the cross. Revel in the cross. So point number one, get real with God. And some of these points, I'm not going to like look at this scripture, look at just the whole thing. We've already read it together. The whole psalm makes this point, this first point that I want to say. Get real with God. You know, so many people will not pray this way. They refuse. They want to use the nice, neat, tidy, you know, maybe this, when they were a kid, they were taught in Sunday school, you fold your hand. That's fine. That's great. I teach my kids that. Fold your hands, close your eyes, speak reverently to God. You throw that out the water when you, when you come to this psalm. No, this guy's thrown nice, neat, and tidy out the window. He is raw, unvarnished, unedited uncensored. This is the kind of guy that's praying in his car with the windows rolled up. He's not writing a journal. Somebody may find it and he's going to get arrested. This is just between him and God, even though he shared it with community. I'll share that a little bit later. Now, this guy felt the freedom to talk to God like this. And I know a lot of people would look at him. A lot of people would look at him and tisk tisk. How dare you speak irreverently to God like that? Don't you know who he is? But listen, guys, don't judge this guy. Envy him. Because he felt the freedom. He felt the freedom to crawl in the darkness, through the darkness to God, and be real with God. Because I got news for you. God already knows how you feel. You can tell him. He's not going to go, ah, ah, Oh my word! No, God knows your thoughts, the Bible says. Before they even form words off your tongue, God knows what you're thinking. If you're angry, God already knows it. If you're disgusted, He knows it. If you're jealous, if you're envious... He knows the thoughts that are in your heart and expressing them to him is a way we fight in the dark. We have to get real with God. We have to. You know, that's one of the things we lost in the Garden of Eden. I know everybody kind of snickers when we talk about Adam and Eve were naked. My kids do. They were naked in the garden. When they were together, they were naked and they were unashamed, right? But we forget this. They were naked and they walked with God in the cool of the evening in the garden. 
I mean, just the metaphorical picture and truth there. They were who they were in the presence of God. They didn't have to pretend. They didn't have to put fig leaves on. They didn't have to posture themselves. There was no hypocrisy. There was no pretending. You don't have to pretend when you come to God. And I think so many Christians maybe just haven't been taught this. God already knows. Get real with Him. Take off the veneer. Say, Lord, I'm angry. I'm hurt. I'm confused. I don't get it, God. What are you doing to me? It's okay to be that real with God. It is. You can. Because listen, here is the rock-solid truth. When you come to God, you know, many people have been taught this, the, the prayer. If you think of the throne room of God as this amazing, transcendent, sovereign God sitting on a throne, and you can just kind of timidly push the door open and knock. Is this a good time? I, don't, I hate to bother you. I, I, I know I don't belong in your presence. I don't deserve to be there. No, that's every other religion in the world. That's the view of God. But Christianity says there is a throne room, and he's sitting on a throne, and we can barge in there at any given time that we want and feel like not only are we welcome there, we belong there. Jesus has paid for us to be there. Because listen, we're coming to a throne, but it's a throne of grace. It's not a throne of judgment, guys. That throne's empty. Jesus already sat in it and absorbed all the wrath of God. So we don't have to cower in God's presence anymore. And I get it. I know the Bible talks about the fear of God. That's another sermon. For today, we're talking about this. This guy rushed in. I like what Tim Keller said. He said, if you bust into the king's bedroom at 3 a.m. demanding a glass of water, you better be one of his children. We have access like that. Praise God. You're not going to surprise God, and God's not going to say, will you leave me alone? Can't you see I'm busy? He's not going to say that. You can get real with God. Don't judge me for this. Stephen, you went and saw this movie with me years ago. And uh, I know that... uh, I'm not telling you everything in this movie is accurate, but Mel Gibson is a, uh, he's a father who lost his wife to a drunk driver, okay? She died. He's very angry at God already. And then aliens invade. I know I'm telling you, it's a kind of a crazy movie. Aliens invade, and, and they're attacking his family and the whole world, you know, and, and Mel Gibson grabs his son who has asthma really bad, and his brother and his little girl, and they take shelter in the basement, and they forgot his son's medication. He's hyperventilating. He can't breathe. He's about to suffocate. And on the left, Mel Gibson, he's got his arms around his son. He's saying, we'll go through this together. We'll go through this together. He breathes and he says, just relax. And there is a point in the film, I just got, I got goosebumps. I watched it on YouTube like five times the other day. Mel Gibson says, don't do this. He's talking to God. He says, don't you do this to me. Don't you do this to me. Not again. And then he says this. I can't believe I'm saying this in church. He says this. He says, I hate you. I hate you. And you, you remember, Stephen, you could hear visibly people, this was 2001 when the movie came out. You know, we're, it's a few years, culture still had some semblance of reverence and people were, people hissed that were Christians that saw that movie. It's like, oh my word, you're just, he just told God he hated him. And I'm not saying that that's a good thing. I'm just saying, there's a part of me, I look at a movie like that and I'm like, well, at least he, and I know it's a movie, okay? It's, he's an actor. But there's a part of me, have you ever felt like that? God, I'm so angry at you. I, am, I feel so forsaken and abandoned by you. Where were you, God? Where were you? Do you tell God that? Because he knows you feel that way. And when you open up and you're vulnerable and you're transparent and you're sharing those thoughts with God, something happens. That's like how prayer works, guys. It's a blessing that we can talk to God. No other religion. Find me. I'm not, not making fun of other religions here. 
You'd be hard-pressed to find a Muslim who talks to Allah the way this guy talked to God. It's not going to happen. It's just not going to happen. Because Christianity celebrates grace. We're able to do this. And other people did it too, by the way. This is Job chapter 7. Now, Job was the most righteous man on the face of the earth, right? And he said a lot of things. And the Bible even says, when he said, God, you did this to me, it says, and Job did not sin with his lips. Very interesting. He says, I loathe my life. I would not live forever. Leave me alone, for my days are a breath. <laughs> now, I'm just telling you guys, this stuff's in the Bible. Have you ever said that to God? God, just leave it. Go away. Leave me alone. The quiet crowd in here today. <laughs> How long will you not look away from me, nor leave me alone till I swallow my spit? That's a euphemism for dying. If I sin, what do I do to you, you watcher of mankind? Most righteous man on the face of the earth talking to God here. He had a relationship. <laughs> you know, the family that comes home and they all pretend nobody talks. Maybe dad goes in the room and binges on Netflix for five hours and the kids get on their devices. Nobody's talking. Everyone's like, what a beautiful family. And then there's the family that comes home and they're talking and they're arguing. Which one has the relationship? This guy has a relationship with God. And so does Psalm 88 guy. I envy in a way their transparency because I've, I've felt like that before and I didn't feel the freedom to really share that with God. I thought that was being irreverent and watcher of mankind. Why have you made me your mark? Why are you targeting me, God? Why is there crosshairs on my face? Why have I become a burden to you? And then look at King David wrote this, Psalm 39. A man after God's heart said this. Last verse in Psalm 39. Look away from me that I may smile again. In Hebrew, it's like, so I can have peace. Look away from me, God, so that I can smile again and have peace before I depart and I'm no more. It's like, God, enough. I'm ready to die. Just look away. Give me some peace. These are men of God and women of God, I'm sure, that are just being honest and open and vulnerable with God. You can be real to Him. There's the throne of grace. And if you argue with that, I would say, look, God put this prayer in the Bible. He didn't edit it. You know, I have kids and they do artwork and sometimes they bring home art and it's like, eh, that's, that's hideous. <laughs> but what do, you, what do you, I've said this before in here, what do you do with it? Moms, dads, where do you put it? On the fridge. Why? Because that's your son, that's your daughter, you're proud of them. You like that. That's, mommy loves that. You know what God did with this prayer? He put it on his fridge. He didn't say, I don't like guys like that praying in my... I don't want that prayer in my Bible. Let's edit it, guys. Let's clip the edges. Nope. Leave it in there. Why? For people like me that need it. Maybe you're one of them, too. Maybe you need it. I do. There's times I feel like this. Is there room in your theology for, uh, of worship for a Psalm 88? One writer said this about this psalm. I'm, I'm not kidding you. Somebody wrote a book, and this was in it. The Lord knows that the sentiment of this whole psalm sometimes best describes his wayward, short-sighted, impenitent, insensitive, and faithless children. Wow. Is that what we're supposed to take away from this? This is faithless? This is faithless? This guy's apostatizing, maybe? He's walking away from God? I don't, that's not the way I see it. Not the way I see it at all. No, check this out. Look at verses 1, 9, and 13. Verse 1, I cry out day and night before you. I cry out day and night. Here's a guy, he's en enveloped in darkness, but he's praying. He's praying. How are we doing? How are we? <laughs> I'm just being honest, guys. So many people would look at this guy and 
wag their finger and be like, this guy, this is apostatizing. This is terrible. This is faithless. This is sinning. It's like, but listen, guys, he's, going, he's crawling into the throne room begging God. He's praying night and day. Look at the next verse. Verse 9. Every day I call upon you. Verse 13. I spread out my hands to you. In the morning. It's like morning, night, evening. There's a relentlessness to this guy's faith. This is not faithless. This is worship is what this is. This guy is worshiping. It's just not pretty. It's just messy. We don't know what to do with it. We don't have a, a place for it. So we shove it over here in Psalm 88. And we're like, don't talk about it. Put police tape around it. <laughs> not to see here. Move along. This is a very helpful psalm. This guy refused to let go of God. And here's the beauty in this psalm. Even with no relief, no answers, no help, he's not going anywhere. He's not leaving. That's faith. Even when there's nothing from God encouraging him to keep praying, he keeps praying in the darkness. His, his knuckles are white. If you would see this guy praying, he was, his, fence, his fist would be clenched, his windows would be up, and there'd be tear stains streaming down his face. But that's a man right there that worships, that understands grace, I would say. He keeps on praying while everything in his life is decaying. Everything. Relationships have crumbled. Maybe his marriage is on the rocks. Maybe he's got stage four. Maybe he just buried a kid. You got people in this congregation that have had to bury their child. That's darkness. I bet they could tell you something about Psalm 88. This man's prayer is not a sign of death. It's a sign of life. You know what death looks like? You know what apostatizing, apostasy looks like? It looks like this. Here's Psalm 85, 86, 87. Oh, there's a blank spot there. 89, 90. No, this guy's praying. This guy's, this guy's fighting in the dark. What's it look like? Get real with God. That's point one. That's your first fighting tip. Get real with God. Don't judge the man that raises up his fist to God. At least, he, at least there's a relationship there. It's like Jacob wrestling with the Lord. Alone in the dark in the middle of the night. Fighting tip number two, register your pain. Register your pain. I'm going to try my best to get through this sermon. I really want to finish this. Uh, this is an inspired title. Did you guys know that? When you're reading the book of Psalms, there's a sub, some people call them subscripts or subtitles. Those are inspired too, okay? God wants you to, to read those. I had a Hebrew professor that would get, it would come unglued if we didn't read that, if we didn't translate it when we were translating. I never did because it was more work, you know? Um, look at this, a song. This is, the, this is the fighting tip now. Register your pain. So what do you mean you're saying this is a private prayer journal? This is between him and God? It is, it is. But check this out. This guy wrote this as a poem, as a song. He took it to the sons of Korah, who were musicians and theologians. And he's like, you know, guys, I've been thinking. Maybe I'm not the only one. Maybe there's other people. Um, you think we could make this into... I'm not a musician. I don't even know the metrics, rhymes, whatever. Make a melody. Make a. Can we turn this into a hymn? And, and I don't know. Let's, let's give it to the, to the uh, choir master. And let's let him put sheet music to it. And I don't know. Maybe we could sing it on Sunday. Can you imagine <laughs> what the sons of Korah said at first? They're like, ah, I don't know, Heman. Uh, uh, this, is, this is kind of dark, brother. But no, God wanted it. They did it. They sang this. It, everyone knew Heman. Everyone knew he man the Ezraite. They're like, man, there's the guy that, that wrote that song that really helped us. He registered his pain. Why? 
Because do you know how many people there are who are suffering and walking in darkness? And they think this, what compounds and exacerbates their problem, they think they're all alone. That's how Satan works, by the way. That's what the accuser does. You're the only one. This is so terrible, and it's never going to end. And you're the only one that's ever been so pitch black for you. That's what he does. Aren't you glad this song? How many people, do you, how many millions of people do you think have been helped by this man's courageous registering of his pain? I'll tell you, this man has. And I'm sure I'm not alone. I'm sure I'm not alone. Um, let me read this really quick. Ron Dunn was a remarkable preacher. He was an amazing gift to the church. And he suffered tremendously. I, it, I, I, it would take the rest of the sermon to tell you all the ways he suffered. One of the ways was his son, Ronnie Jr., took his own life in the 70s. And Ron wrote a book called When Heaven is Silent. Incredible book. But in that book, he, he shares a conversation uh, that he had with some other writers. Let me read this real fast, okay? Track along here. I'm not going to put it up here. I just want to read it. A few years ago, I sat in a motel room with four men whom I considered some of the godliest people I knew. We were discussing with a publisher what we believe were some of the needs among Christians that should be addressed. The topics ranged from prayer and personal Bible study to marriage and home life. Nothing new there. Then we broke for lunch and everyone relaxed and started talking off the record. In a sudden burst of honesty, all four men confessed to a present spiritual darkness in their lives. One admitted he had not felt God's presence in six months. These are Christian writers. Others talked about their inability to pray and their lack of confidence in what they were doing. They were carrying on, of course, doing everything expected of them as pastors, but they were doing it without any sense of God's presence. It had become so bad for one that he had begun to doubt his salvation. He had just written a highly successful book on the Christian life. <laughs> in a word, all of these men were walking in darkness. And then Ron says, this was good news to me because I thought I was the only one who felt like that. When we gathered after lunch, we all agreed that this subject ought to be addressed. For if we were experiencing this, surely others were too. But nothing was done about it. The publisher said it was an unmarketable subject. Now there's tons of books on this. But back then in the 70s, Christians don't get depressed. Some people still believe that. Well, because of that, this man took his life. He's a pastor in California. Had a beautiful family, an amazing marriage successful, thriving church, but he was just enveloped in this depression that he couldn't shake and he felt like he couldn't explain it to anybody because nobody could understand him. So he took his life. This girl got postpartum depression. That's her four-month-old baby, her husband. On the outside, everything looked amazing. One day she dropped off, off her four-month-old at preschool, wrote an email, said what I was afraid to tell you to her entire family, drove down a gravel road, and took her life and left everybody confused. Why? Well, I think a lot of people don't talk about this when they go through it. And it's so helpful to do that, though. It is. To share. That's what Christian community is. That's what one anothering is. We don't live our Christian life isolated. Lone rangers are dead rangers. We need each other. We are a body. We're a family we're a flock, all those metaphors that God uses to remind us we need each other. Bear one another's burdens. You can't do that, man, if you're just touch and go with, on Sunday with Christians. We need real, genuine, authentic community. And we need to be honest with God, get real with God, and then register your pain. Let people know. Number one, that you need help, you need prayer. But number two, you're not the only one. 
You're not the only one that's going through this. This guy uses three agonizing metaphors to describe his condition. Look at verse 10. When he's registering his pain, he says, Do you work wonders for the dead? Do the departed rise up to praise you? Selah. Is your steadfast love declared in the grave or your faithfulness in Abaddon? Are your wonders known in the darkness or your righteousness in the land of forgetfulness? The metaphor is the grave, death. He seems to be saying that death is coming and then that's it. There's no afterlife. But he's not saying that. All he's saying is he's sad because he can't praise God here and now in the land of the living. That's what he wants. He wants to declare the wonders, the loving kindness, the faithfulness of God. It's hard to do that in a coffin, he's saying, right? Come on, God. Revive me. Restore me so I can praise you again. He's begging God for help. He stacks up every word in Hebrew for grave. Pit, Sheol, Abaddon, the abyss. It's not flattering. It almost sounds like this guy's obsessed with death. Like Soren Kierkegaard, the Danish doctor of death that was, wrote about fear and apprehension, all those many books he wrote. The second one is verses 6 and 7, and then 16 and 17. He says, You have put me in the depths of the pit, in the regions dark and deep. Your wrath lies heavy upon me, and you overwhelm me with all your waves. The picture is he's sinking. He's sinking in the ocean, and these waves. He would come up for air, you know, just a little window of hope, and then, bam, if, you, if you've ever tried to surf like me and don't know what you're doing, then you understand. It's like you can't catch your breath. You're drowning. You're, 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 you're gulping for air, and, and salt water goes down your throat. And it's, it's grim. And then the third one is in verse 8. He is languishing away in solitary confinement. Check this out. He says, You have caused my companions to shun me. You have made me a horror to them. I am shut in so that I cannot escape. The word in Hebrew doesn't just mean confinement. It means solitary confinement. Solitary confinement. This man's expectation is death and his experience is is darkness. He is suffering intense agony. And listen, guys, all of us could be a phone call away from this. Phone call. I read a story the other day about a man. He's, he was backing out of his garage, and his daughter was playing in the driveway, and it was a slope, and he didn't know it. And he ran over her. And before she died in his arms, she sat up and she said, Why, Daddy? Why, Daddy? Why? And then she died. That was a dark day for that guy. A good friend of mine that I entered kindergarten with and graduated 12th grade with. My birthday's on February the 7th. Hers is on February the 8th. So we've kept up with each other all these years. Her birthday two weeks ago, on her birthday, her teenage daughter got hit in a car and killed at 8 a.m. I've been following like what she says on Facebook. It's, it's Psalm 88. We're a phone call away or a diagnosis away from this, many of us. Back in uh, 19, the 1960s, there was a book that was written called A Grief Observed by N.W. Clerk. This man kept some private journals and decided to publish them uh, because his, his wife died. And uh, she died of bone cancer just three years after they were, were married. And so he thought it might be helpful to keep a private journal and people encouraged him to share it. And so th this is what he said in one of the darker parts of that book. He said, where is God? Go to him when your need is desperate, when all other help is vain, and what do you find? A door slammed in your face and a sound of bolting and double bolting on the inside. After that, silence. Somebody read this book, and their friend was C.S. Lewis, and they said, look, we know you've lost your wife too. And they thought maybe 
that book would help him. And so they gave it to him. And it turns out C.S. Lewis wrote that book. He just did it under a false name because he was this Christian hero. He was a Christian hero that wrote all these amazing books. Mere Christianity, uh, The Great Divorce, Chronicles of Narnia. And he was concerned that if people read a Psalm 88 type book, it would crush their faith. On the contrary, though. On the contrary. You know how many book, how many people have been helped by this book? A lot of people, because when he wrote it in the 60s, nothing like this was out there. Nothing at all. And there's so many other so many other things I could share. Illustrations of people who registered their pain, just like Heman the Ezraite did. And we need to practice that. William Cooper or Cowper, I don't really know how you pronounce his name, but he wrote hymns like uh, Behind a Frowning Providence, There Hides a Smiling God, and There Is a Fountain Filled with Blood. But did you know that he tried to kill himself three times? This is William Cowper, the amazing hymn writer and poet. He was committed to an insane asylum for 18 months. And he wrote, this is what he wrote about his life. Day and night I am upon the rack, lying down in horror and rising up in despair. My feelings are like those of a man when he arrives at the place of execution. I feel unutterable despair. And this is how he described the last 20 years of his life. I always seem to be scrambling in the dark among rocks and precipices without a guide. Mm. He wrote a poem called The Castaway. It was the final thing he wrote. And it was about a man that fell overboard on a ship and his friends tried to throw him some ropes, but he couldn't, he couldn't catch them and the wind carried the ship away and he's left alone in the dark treading water and finally he sinks. That's the picture. The words that are used in this psalm are like William Cowper's poem. This man feels like he's sinking. This was not a every day is a Friday kind of moment for this guy. Tip number three, we're going to move fast here. Tip number three, rest in what you know. Because when you're in darkness, you're, you're confused, you're disoriented, you don't know what caused it maybe, you don't know how long it's going to last, you don't know what's in it, and you don't know what's going to take it away. So there's a lot of uncertainties, and that can just sink you. It can sink you like a ship with a hole in it in the middle of the ocean. But what's interesting about this, and this is the way all the Bible is, if you dig deeper, you see this guy had been to Sunday school. <laughs> This guy knew some theology. And he's banking on those things. You know, he uses the personal name for Yahweh. Lord, it's all caps in your Bible translation, English translation probably. He calls out on the name of Yahweh three times. That's the personal name for God. That's the covenant-keeping God. That's the faithful God who fights for you, who reveals himself to you, God. See, he knew God loved him and cared for him and was faithful to him, even though his experience and his feelings didn't measure up with that at the moment. He still knew those things in his mind and in his heart. And he's saying them. Check this out. Verse 9, every day I call upon you, O Lord. In verse 13, it says, but I, O Lord, cry to you. In verse 14, O Lord, why do you cast my soul away? Isn't that amazing? This guy's not apostatizing. He's saying faithful, covenant-keeping God who loves me and who has pledged himself to me in a covenant of blood. Please don't abandon me. Please answer my prayer. He didn't know a lot of things, but he knew God's real. God cares about me, and God's not going to let me go, even though my experience and my feelings is that he has. He clung to the things that he knew. When you're in darkness, and guys, again, this is a side note. That's why it's good to study the Bible. <laughs> That's why it's good to be a part of Christian community, to come to church even when you don't feel like it, even when you're not in the darkness, because you know what? Your day may be coming 
when you need some serious theological ammunition. Okay? And if you've been neglectful, and if the rhythms of discipleship in your life have been low or non-existent, your day is going to come. And you're going to reach inside your ammo box to get some things to help you fight, and it's going to be empty. You're going to have a John 3.16 that you saw in a, at an ESPN football game, the guy holding a sign, that's it. Haven't read Christian literature, haven't prayed, you haven't, you know, engaged in Christian community. This guy had been to Sunday school when, when days weren't dark, and he had good sound theology. And he also knew this. He knew God was sovereign. You know what that word means? It means in absolute, complete, undisputed control. It's like the boxers, the undisputed heavyweight. God's sovereign. He's on his throne. Check these verses out. Look at verse 6. You have put me in the depths of the pit. You overwhelm me with all your waves. You have caused my companions to shun me. You have made me a horror to them. Verse 14. You cast off my soul. Verse 14. You hid your face from me. Now, at first, that may sound irreverent, like, like he's just blaming God for all these things. But I don't think that's the case. I think the comfort that this man is clinging to, honestly, if this was like a spiritual hurricane, there's one tree, one tree that hasn't been uprooted yet, like that big mossy oak in Florida that never, the hurricanes can't kill it. He's clinging to that. What is it? It's that God is sovereign and he's on his throne and he dispensed this darkness by his finger. He sent this darkness and I don't know a lot of things, but I think I know that if he sent it, that means he controls it. And it's good to acknowledge that. God, you're sovereign. Even in things that seem meaningless to me, I know there's meaning. There's a lot of things we don't know, but there's some things we do know. God has a purpose in this darkness. He has a purpose in this pain. It's not meaningless. We know that. The cross teaches us that. Right? The most seemingly random, evil, wicked act ever committed in the history of the world was the most significant and majestic because it reconciled sinners to a holy God, right? He doesn't know what this darkness means. He knows what it can't mean. It can't mean God stopped loving him. It can't mean that for him or for you or for me. God's sovereign. Isaiah 45, 6 says this, I am the Lord and there is no other. I form light and create darkness. I make peace and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. Wow. Look at verse 11, guys. Verse 11. Is your steadfast love declared in the grave or your faithfulness in Abaddon? See, if you just look at that on the surface, it looks like he's saying, are you going to kill me? And then I can't do anything, but look closer. Is your steadfast love, you know that's the word hesed? If I said it the way I'm supposed to, I would slobber. Hesed. That's gospel in Old Testament. This guy knows a lot more than we give him credit for, I think. He says, I know all about your steadfast love. I'm just not feeling it right now. Cling to what you know when you're in darkness. What do you know? God loves you. God knows the pain you're in. God's sovereign over it. He's a covenant, faithful, promise-keeping God. All things work together for good. He didn't have Romans 8.28. Man, we're one up on him. We know things about the cross and the clarity of the sacrificial lamb that he never dreamed of. We have so much more ammunition at our fingertips than him. This guy can't see in the dark. He's scared of what's in there. And we are too. Sometimes the thing we think is crushing us is actually saving us. I got the bright idea years ago. My oldest son was little. And he was scared of the dark. And when he was scared of the dark, he would wake up in a panic, have a night terror, and run right into our bedroom and disrupt our sleep with the other babies that Sarah was nursing at the time. So I got a really good idea as a dad. This is one of my best moments as a dad. I said, I know what I'm going to do. 
I'm going to help, I'm going to help him. I'm going to sleep on the bottom bunk because we just gotten a new bunk bed and we had to put a ladder up there <clears throat> and, and he was staying in the top bed and I thought if he freaks out in the middle of the night, uh, he's going to try to get off the bed and he's going to fall and hurt himself or kill himself. So I know what I'm going to do. Being the wise father I am, I'm going to sleep on the bottom bunk and I'm going to stay awake because it will usually happen about midnight. And I said, because he thinks monsters are in the dark. He, I don't know who told him that. Maybe his mom or somebody. But He thought monsters were in the dark, right? <laughs> yeah, that's a, that's a long story. She tells our kids that monsters are in the pond so they don't go down there. So now I've got to deal with that. But she's being a good mom. She's being a good mom. <laughs> so... I'm thinking in the middle of the night, he's going to think there's a monster in the room and, and climb off the bed and fall, but I'm going to be there to catch him. So sure enough, about 1230, I hear panic breathing and I hear some squeaking around and, and a little boy climbing down a ladder and I jumped up and I grabbed him and I went, I got you. <laughs> yeah, that was, that was brilliant, right? But check this out. My eyes were open and I was adjusted to the dark. I could see everything in the dark. He couldn't. He couldn't see the toys in the floor, the ladder that he was about to fall off of. He couldn't see me. He didn't know who I was or what I was doing. He thought I was a monster. You know what I was doing? I was saving his life. I mean, metaphorically. He probably would have survived, but it's a sermon. You've got to get emphasis, right? We can't see in the dark. We, what we don't know is that God's in the dark. He's there with us in the dark. He's not going anywhere. God wants us to trust him in the dark. Psalm 50 says this, Whoever walks in deep darkness and has no light, let him trust in the name of the Lord and rely upon his God. God is in the darkness. Psalm 139 says, where can I go to escape your presence? If I go to the darkness, behold, you're there. Isn't that a comfort to know that? This guy knew that in his heart. He was feeling abandonment from God, but he knew in his heart God was there. And what we want is light. We want God to turn the lights on. We want him to tell us, why is this here? When's it going away? How long is it going to last? And God says, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to give you something much better than light. And answer your questions. I'm going to give you faith. I'm going to give you faith. You can walk by faith. You don't have to see. You don't have to have the lights turn on. I'm going to give you faith. Okay, this is the last point. We're going to go fast. The last point is... Uh, I feel like I'm leaving something out. The last point is this. Rebel in the cross. Rebel in the cross. Okay? So check this out. No matter how severe, how deep, how penetrating, how pitch black your darkness is, I can tell you this, with absolute confidence, if you have placed your faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ, your darkness is not going to last forever. I can tell you that. See, we tell people shallow things when, when they're suffering. It's like, God's going to take this away, which is true, but I don't think we mean it that way. We mean, you know, surely God's not going to let this last longer than a few days. I can't tell people that because I don't know. What I can tell them, though, is this. Because of Jesus Christ, what he did for you and for me, this ain't going to last forever. I can tell people they're going to be healed too. It may not be in this life, but I know this. God has come to rescue, renew, and restore and redeem his creation. And one day, cancer is not going to mean anything to us. We're going to be like, what's, like Ray, like Ray uh, Ortland said. We're going to be like, what was that word again? What was it? Cancer? Yeah, what's that? It's not going to be around. Darkness is going to go away. We're not even going to need the sun or the moon in heaven because the brightness of the glory of Christ is going to be there. That's going to illuminate everything for us. You say, well, how can you say that, though? Because of this. Do you know that the, the day that Jesus died on the cross, do you know the Bible gives with stunning clarity the details of what happened that day? Do you know what happened at the sixth hour, which is 12 noon? In the Middle East, the, the sun would have been at the apex 
Right in the middle of the day, Jesus was crucified. And you know what it says? Darkness descended. People have tried to write that, oh, it was an eclipse. No, it wasn't. We know the exact month that it happened in Nisan. It wasn't an eclipse. It didn't happen that year. What was it? You know what darkness meant to a Hebrew? Judgment. The judgment and the wrath of God came down that day at Jerusalem. Hell came to Jerusalem. And it's almost as if God didn't want anybody to see it. It's between him and his son. Darkness came. And Jesus was swallowed up in the ultimate darkness. Listen, he was swallowed up in the ultimate darkness that you and I, because of him, will never have to face. He saved you and I from the ultimate darkness of facing God's wrath, naked in our own righteousness. We'll never have to face that because of what Jesus Christ did. The Bible says that the earth shook, rocks split in two, people came out of their graves, the, temple and the, uh, the curtain in the temple was rent in two because in, for the first time in eternity, God the Father turned his face, turned his back on God the Son. Did you know that? Jesus cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? See, we'll never have to face the ultimate desertion and abandonment and forsakenness that Jesus did. Why? Because Jesus took it in our place. Jesus did not abandon us in his ultimate darkness. He stayed on the cross. He could have gotten down. He could have called down legions of angels, but he didn't. And the nails didn't keep him there, guys. Love did. The love kept Christ there. So listen, if he didn't abandon us in his ultimate darkness, what in the world thinks you, makes you think he's going to abandon you in your darkness? It's not going to happen. Jesus made the way for us to be back in the presence of God, and it cost him his life. That is good news. That's good news. That's why you can read a psalm like Psalm 88 and say, this is terrible, this is sad, this is not ultimate. This darkness is not ultimate. Christ took the ultimate darkness for me so that I know this won't last forever. And there's things that I know I can cling to while in the dark.